at my welcome to you all this morning. Uh, for you visitors, I am Greg Dernberger. I'm also one of the elders here at Emmaus Road Church. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to the book of Ecclesiastes. This strange, strange book in the Bible. The, the, the big message of the book of Ecclesiastes is that life in this world under the sun, that phrase just repeats itself over and over and over again. Life in this world under the sun is complicated, messy. And because we all so readily identify with that, I think that though it's a strange book, um, we relate. We relate to what's being said here. And the exhortation of the book of Ecclesiastes is really quite simply, stop pretending it ain't so. Stop pretending that life is uncomplicated and uh, stop pretending that life is not messy. It is. You think you've got your life in order? You think you've got it all nailed down? You think you have a plan for your future? And then you find out that your company is downsizing and you're the first cut. Or your doctor tells you that the polyp is malignant. Or your spouse tells you that the marriage is over. Or you wake up to discover a loved one died in the night. In those moments, and in many, 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 many more, you realize that the control that you thought that you had over life was just an illusion. To quote the great philosopher, theologian, Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan. Until you get punched in the mouth. That's, uh, that's essentially the, the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's say we grasp this message. And we own up to the reality that life in this world eludes our control. Well then how should we live? And beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. The preacher. So called preacher. We believe it's Solomon. Directs his audience into the implications for responsible living under the sun. And in a moment, I'm going to direct your attention to uh, the text for today, beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8. And we're going to go all the way through Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Rather than read that entire section, for now, I'm just going to read a poem. The poem that is inspired by God, uh, written by Solomon, found in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. So, follow along. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely, 
Oppression drives the wise into madness. And a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than, the, than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He, that is God, has made crooked. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. This is just not the way we talk, O Lord. This sounds foreign to us. This vocabulary, this style of communication, it's strange to our ears. And yet, Lord, it is inspired by you. And in it, there is wisdom. Wisdom that would preserve our lives. And so, we would consider your words. And we would consider your works. And we are depending on you to, to nourish our souls in a way, to give us revelation, illumination, understanding in a way that flesh and blood cannot do, and flesh and blood cannot satisfy. And we pray for, for food for our souls that this world knows not of. Do this, Lord, for your glory, we pray. Magnify the, the sweetness and the power of your word. Do this, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. By nature, we, we dislike limitations. We dislike constraint. You tell a child it's time to stop playing and put the toys away. You get behind a slow driver. You find that that knee or ankle is just too tender to run on three days in a row. You discover that the cheapest tickets to Hamilton are over $600 a piece. <clears throat> Typically, the human response to limitations, to desiring more than we can have, is frustration and anger, such as our nature. According to James chapter 4, James is kind of a New Testament version of wisdom literature. He says, what, what causes quarrels? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. Now, now that's, of course, extreme, but, you know, we know what he, what he means. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So limitations 
mainly feel like adversaries. But, but what if, what if you could blow the lid off of those limitations? Would it not be awesome to have, even for a brief period of time, unlimited access to unlimited expense account or uh, the ability to leverage your children toward immediate obedience with no complaining or to possess the insight to always make a great decision, the perfect decision. It's an illusion, but uh, imagine that for a bit. If there was ever a human being unbound by the things that restrain the vast majority of us, it is the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. When it comes to prosperity, when it comes to power, when it comes to unfettered prerogatives in his pursuit of pleasure, Solomon had it all, or at least he had more than anyone had ever had before. And yet his own personal estimation of the absence of limitations is simply vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I have acquired it all and it is nothing more than striving after the wind. Now, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 8 all the way through the end of chapter 7, his aim is to help us to see limitations in a different light. For when we see limitations for what they really are, they, 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 not, they do not need to result in anger or fear or frustration. Rather, each and every limitation we encounter in this life under the sun, when perceived rightly, is instead a reason for, remarkably, joy and comfort and peace. And so my aim is to join the preacher of Ecclesiastes uh, and to help us reframe limitations and to help us see that limitations are occasions for displaying that God is supremely valuable in my life. Limitations are occasions for displaying the reality that God is supremely valuable in my life. Because you see, when earthly limitations rule our responses, we make God and we make His sovereign rule and reign, and we make God in His wisdom, and we make God in His providence over all things, we make God and the goodness of His glorious grace to be as if they were of no consequence. And loved ones, that to quote a friend, is the greatest outrage in the universe. To make God and His greatness and His glory and His wisdom and His providential rule and reign as if it is no consequence is an outrage. God gave us the book of Ecclesiastes and more. God gave us Christ Jesus to turn that around in your life and in mine and in all the earth. Now, how does the preacher train us to view life's limitations? Well, the, the first thing that he does is, it, is he aims to slice through all this pretentious illusion that there are no illu, uh, limitations. How many of you 
have at some time or another heard the fundamental message, you can be whatever you want to be. Just dream big, work hard, focus, discipline, ambition, stir it all together, and you can have, you can accomplish, you can be whatever you want. And as inspiring as the Rudy Rudigers of the world may be, that is just not real life under the sun. And the first thing the preacher shows us in this text is that Limitations are built into the the fabric of life. In his quest to seek and to search out all that is done under heaven, the preacher learned, he learned that there are limits to everything. And in this text, he provides a survey of his findings. His observations led to the conclusion that there are limitations to one's ability to leverage influence and control over others. This is not rocket science. Ask any parent, manager, coach. Uh, what, what do you call you people that ride herd on these, uh, all these kids? I mean, I did this, you know, um, sponsors, whatever we are. Chaperones, that's the word. <laughs> Chaperones. Uh, there, there is a definite limitation to power and influence. Definite limitation. We are talking now about the capacity to get what you want or the capacity to pursue what you value. You see, the glory of a leader is their power to organize and coalesce others over and against all this inertia in order to get something done. The glory of a politician is their power to persuade and move a bill over all opposition into legislation. The glory of a parent is their power and influence to overcome the natural bent of their children from self-will to joyful compliance. And when great power is wielded in the, in the, the pursuit of great good, we, we stand back and we just are amazed. Wow! Joy! Glory! It's awesome! But, as Abraham Lincoln famously said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. You see, power and influence are are not met with limitations in those we hope to lead. It's it's most significant limiting factor lies within each one of ourselves. We're the biggest limiting factor when it comes to leveraging power and influence. Look at Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 and 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them, But this is gain for a land in every way. Namely, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, again, this is is strange talk, isn't it? But but the point is is that petty power plays or passive-aggressive people or violations of justice, whatever it is, eventually all leadership is akin to herding cats. 
there are limitations to what you can accomplish. One of my mentors regularly reminded me that pastoral ministry was like trying to push a rope. Try to push a rope. We spend days, weeks, months, even years at times asserting initiative and what we believe is wise and godly counsel toward a Godward goal. And all it takes is someone, oh man, with whom we are seeking to counsel and assert care to have a conversation with a, uh, somebody else, a peer, possessing a different point of view and the whole thing that we work for, for weeks and months and years to accomplish is just undone. In the real world under the sun, limitations to influence abound at every level. And according to Ecclesiastes 5.9, even the impact and leverage of the most powerful person in the land is contingent on something. Agriculture. He can't do anything unless there's food in the cultivated fields. And the more they acquire, the more powerless they feel. Living with humble regard for this reality is no small matter. And the preacher is aiming to save our lives. No doubt he's familiar with the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 8. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you Power to get wealth, which leads to a second category, a second category where we experience limitations, and that is the limitations of wealth. We're all familiar with the saying, you cannot take it with you. But the impulse within every human beating heart is to deny that that's so. We might believe it, but we don't live that way. And so the richest man, the richest man in the world instructs us. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 to 17. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sleep is the sleep of a la- sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, He shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. Those who have limited resources often are frustrated by the limitations that there are seemingly all around them to gain more. As soon as you get the bonus, you know, or the nice tax refund, you know, the brakes go out and you break a tooth and need a crown. It's just, just 
always the way it is. But there are, so there are limits on how much you can have. But, but those with more, those with a lot, encounter other limitations, namely limits on the ability to experience satisfaction with what they have. An increase of goods brings with it an increase of accountants and lawyers and staff and managers and scads of consultants and all these hungry people, you know, eyed people looking at what you've got. Douglas Wilson, commenting on these verses, says, Men who build empires frequently find themselves holding a grizzly bear by the ears. The more they do, the less they're able to do. The more they amass, the less control they have. Few men have wealth, and even fewer control it when they do. A man arrives without possessions, and he leaves without possessions. And in the interval, while he does have all his stuff, he cannot sleep because he worries about it. What a deal! He labored all that while for the whistling wind, working to amass his very own treasury of balloon juice. And for that reward, he ate his meals in darkness and suffered his sorrow and wrath and added it all to his sickness. It's vanity. And we know it's vanity. We know it's straining to keep smoke in our pockets. But we knock ourselves out for it anyway. And then there's the limitation of, of our days. Sooner or later, we all are going to die. That qualifies as limiting. Ecclesiastes 6, verse 6. Even though he should live a thousand years, twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. You live 2,000 years. You're still going to die. Ecclesiastes 6.12, who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 and 2, better is the day, this is an interesting phrase, better is the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of Feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. So how is that? How is that? How, how is it that the day of death is better than the day of birth? And we just added a new grandchild to our family. I got, I got pictures, a lot of pictures just in two months. Uh, I, I have pictures of, of our granddaughter within hours of the moment she was born. I have Pictures of her day of birth. And what, do we, what can we say about a granddaughter in those moments? It, oh, she's beautiful. What a good-looking baby. She takes after the mother, obviously. Uh, she, she's starting to fill out. She's sleeping longer. These, these are profound observations, but massively significant to grandparents. Now, fast forward to the day of her death, say 80-something, God willing. What can we say about her then? Well, we could say things like, oh, she, she was such a servant. She was so kind and generous. She was a woman of prayer. Oh, there, there was such depth about her. She was so much like Jesus. 
Or we might say things like, you know, she was so into her, her garden. Or, or she was so into her cats. Or, you know, she was, she was such a fan of the Minnesota Twins. Or, or right up to the end, she was so passionate about spicy Uno. You say stuff like that. Or, or we might say things like, she was so self-centered. All she ever did was complain and criticize. The only person she ever lived for was herself. She was such an unhappy person. The day of death is better than the day of birth, not because dying is better than living. It's, it's, it's not better. Dying is not better than living. The day of death is better than the day of birth because the casket is a better preacher than the cradle. When life ends or is about to end, absolutely everything else comes into focus. And the things that don't really matter, but which we just gave so much time and energy to, seem now empty and pointless. The the lives we touched, the generosity we showed, the love we gave or received now means, oh, that's what means everything. The intimacy that we pursued with Christ means everything. The influence we asserted for the glory of God means everything. That's what the preacher is saying. The limits of life are meant to teach you something. Teach you, don't be a fool. Stop trying to escape life's agonies by drowning them away, by laughing them off or pretending they don't exist. If you're gone tomorrow, or if you're gone 20 years from tomorrow, then ask yourself today, given my limited time in this world, what kind of person am I going to be? Because one day I'm going to be dead. And then, according to Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. Verse 2, this is the end of all mankind, and the living lay it to heart. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The preacher moves on to the limitations of wisdom. Oh, now, if there was anything that we would think would be good, this would be it, right? But even wisdom has limitations. In chapter 1, the preacher testified to having acquired great wisdom, surpassing all that were before him. And, 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 and then after an entire lifetime of pursuing wisdom, checking it all out, he sums up his discovery like this. Look at Ecclesiastes 7, verses 23 and 24. All this... I have tested by wisdom. And I said, I will be wise. And here's the wisest man in the world. But it was far from me. The wisest man in the world. It was was out of my reach. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who? can find it far off, too deep to find out. Now, now don't hear him saying something that 
like, you know, wisdom doesn't have any benefits. It does. Chapter 7, verse 11 says, wisdom is good. Chapter 7, verse 12, wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. But wisdom also has limits. There are some things under the sun, on the side of eternity, that they're beyond us, too deep for us to, to understand process. Wisdom cannot explain why some live in luxury and while other good people go hungry and die poor. Wisdom cannot explain why some people lie and cheat and still gain every advantage while the honest, hard-working folks never can get a break. Wisdom cannot help you with all these things. It, it can help you with your money. It can help you with your parenting. It can provide even a God-honoring response when you overhear a hurtful word you were not meant to hear. Look at verse 21 of chapter 7. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others proper framework. That's wisdom. Only wisdom can anchor your emotions in situations that are hurtful like that. Nevertheless, wisdom has its limitations. Even wisdom cannot achieve the kind of control over your life and destiny that you seek. Now, there's, there's one more significant category of limitation to which the preacher directs our attention. This may be the most significant of them all. And that is the limitation of righteousness. And what I mean is, everyone sins. No one is righteous. Not even one. Look at chapter 7, verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. <laughs> I've seen it all. There, there, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. <laughs> and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And, and, and you see, not all righteousness is righteous. There, there are those who pass themselves off as righteous, but they're not righteous. That's where we get these terms like nice Christian or priggish Christian or sanctimonious Christian or stickler Christian or insufferable Christian or prudish Christian or doctrinally correct Christian, know-it-all Christian, quiet time every day or I'll go to hell Christian, conceited Christian, unchristian Christian. There are those kind of righteous people. And it's limited. And the antidote to this kind of pseudo-righteousness is the fear of God. But on the other hand, on the other hand, there are those who know they are not righteous. It is 
clear to them that they have no righteousness of their own. Their thoughts betray to them the reality that their, that their hearts by nature are made of stone and that their heads are full of rocks and whatever it is that we just sang a little bit ago. But by God's grace, it's by God's grace that they are counted blameless. It is by God's grace that they are reckoned as sinless. It is, it's because of the righteousness of another, not their own, that they can be counted righteous. Loved ones, the limitation of our righteousness is no reason to hang our heads in shame, but rather the foundation and the occasion for prizing and treasuring the supremacy of God in Christ above all. Because you see, and, and, and now this is like the second main observation over this text. Limitations are God-given. They're God-given. Whether it has to do with getting people to do what you want them to do, or it has to do with having the ability to buy what you want, or it has to do with you know, whether the number of your years is three or the number of your years is 103, or it has to do with making decisions that reflect the insight of Solomon or not, or if, or if it has to do with the basis of our standing before God. Whatever it is, limitations are intended to reveal to us that God is God and that we are not. It's to point us to the reality that God is supreme over all, and we are not. And in this, limitations, all limitations, huge limitations, minor limitations, they're gifts. They're gifts. Ecclesiastes 7, verse this, this may be the most pivotal verse in the entire book. This is the one that committed to memory a long time ago, and it gets work done in my life. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So if there are limitations to our lives under the sun, and there are, then let's be absolutely clear. God is the one who put them there. If you feel boxed in, boxed in by some bad move or some unwise decision, you feel stuck in some dead-end job or an unhappy marriage, trapped in some situation that tries you might, you know, it's just all wrong. It's just all wrong. It's not changing. If you are joined to Christ by faith, even these limitations are gifts from God. The Bible is drenched with examples of people 
who under God's providence were boxed in by their circumstances. I mean, I think of Joseph prison for years and his brothers did him wrong. You can say, you meant it for evil, but God was in it. Every bit of it meant it for good. Israel is enslaved in Egypt. And, and the whole purpose is to put on display the glory of God in their exodus and escape. The ultimate, the ultimate exhibit of it all is Jesus on the cross. All our limitations, all our limitations are gifts. They're gifts, which means that they're all good. They're all good. Before Christ, sin is our preference for anything. Power, position, possessions, positive perception over God. Sin is our disapproval of God. Sin is our exchange of His glory for substitutes. Sin is our suppression of the truth of God. Sin is our heart's hostility to God. And it is who we are at the bottom of our hearts until Christ. And all our limitations then are gifts from God to direct us to the one who is better, who is greater, who is higher, who is sweeter, than any other. Jesus is the servant leader who gets the job done, at whose name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the one to, to, to live as Him and to die is gain. Jesus is the greater and wiser Solomon. And God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that in Him we might, in our limitedness, become the very righteousness of God. Amen. Amen. So, very briefly then, how to live with these limitations to the glory of the Lord. I'm just going to mention three things super briefly. Clearly, this text is meant to help us to reframe our perspective on the limitations of life. In order to live with limitations in such a way that they become occasions for displaying the supreme value of God, we've got to look at them. You've got to face them head on. You've got to think rightly about them. Ecclesiastes 6, 18 and 19, he says, Behold. That means, behold. That means, look, think, pay attention, check this out. What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. And some people's lot seems to be nice and smooth. Others people, other people's lot seems to be a little crooked. Either way. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil. This is a gift of God. This is reframing limitations. If you reframe, if you look at your limitations rightly, they are a reason for joy, not frustration. And that requires, secondly, that we then trust God's goodness and wisdom and love. For those who are in Christ, every providence 
every promise is good. And that means that if you have not yet been joined to Christ by repentance and faith, this is the time to do that. For those who are in Christ Jesus, everything, everything, God works everything together for your eternal well-being. Let's pray together. Lord, it's only by the, the, the sweet and merciful, gracious work of Your Spirit that we're able to um, consider all of the limitations in our lives and embrace them joyfully. It, it's a gift. This is a gift to be able to, to not just reckon with them, see them, know them, but to trust You in them. So today, uh, I know that I can confess that I'm not God. My ability to breathe and keep on living, there's a limit to that. And it's, it's granted by you in your wisdom and goodness and love. If I, if I have any ability to think straight, it's limited by you. It's determined by you. There's ability to see and feel glory in your word and in the person of Jesus. It's because you have seen fit to adjust these limitations. If, if there's any experience of joy and satisfaction in a world filled with vanity and frustrating things, it's because you have granted it. If, if my experience of being loved if I have an experience of being loved by my wife, that the boundaries around that are set by you. The extent of my leadership is determined by you. Whether it's a small place or a broad place, it's determined by you. If the, the measure of my physical energy is determined by you, the extent and the boundaries of my motives being understood is determined by you. The measure of my financial resources and ability to to find meaningful work in my work is determined by you. The timing and the possibilities of, of uh, the end of my days is determined by you. There are those here, Lord, today who, who um, the timing and, timing and possibility of getting married and having children is determined by you. The progress, the extent of our progress and holiness and maturity in Christ is determined by you. God, if... If you are full of wisdom and love and goodness and your love, you have seen fit to make things crooked. There is no way that we're going to be able to make them straight. Grant to us, impart to us faith and comfort and peace with you being God. That's the gift that we need today. And so we pray, Lord, strengthen our faith, strengthen our trust, help us to believe, help us in our unbelief. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.